Dramatic turbulence in the stock market, huge losses, and then huge gains, then huge losses. What does this mean for the economy and for all of us? Is it a harbinger of another recession? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week. Thanks to the support of our patrons. Go to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program and subscribe if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. He has a new hard copy edition of his book, Understanding Marxism, which has been released recently. It includes a new lengthy introduction. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Well, we never have to think too long and hard about what our stories will be because there's so much excitement. Of course, if you're on the losing end of the excitement, it's not really all that exciting. But of course, I'm talking about the stock market. On Monday, the stock market lost a thousand points. And then by the end of the day, by the 4 p.m. closing, recovered all of those thousand points and then gained a hundred points. So it was the single biggest recovery in the history of the stock market, according to the Wall Street Journal. And then yesterday, the stock market plummeted again in the morning. It was rocky for parts of the morning. Anyway, lots of turbulence. And I just want to get your opinion because, of course, most workers are not directly involved or invested in the stock market. Perhaps their pensions are. Perhaps they have some savings connected to the stock market. They're not the big players. Most of the people in the country are not really connected to the stock market. But what happens on Wall Street and to the stock exchange has an impact not only for those who own stock, but for the entire economy. So what do we make out of all of this turbulence? Well, I think it is less the impact the stock market will have on the larger economy, although we can talk about that. It's a bit more the other way, how the developments in the larger economy are now hitting the stock market. You get a sense of the difficulties, if you like, of the larger capitalist, U.S. capitalist system by seeing the connection between what's been going on there and what is now exploding 
in the stock market. So let me briefly review that. We have had three crashes of capitalism, U.S. capitalism, so far in this still young century. The so-called dot-com crisis of 2000, the so-called subprime mortgage crisis of 2008, and the so-called COVID-19 crisis of 2020. You'll notice that each of those crises is given a particular name because the fear is that it isn't about this or that particular event. It's about a system that is fundamentally unstable and that periodically smacks us in the face with uh, difficulty. In each of those crashes, people lost their jobs, people lost their homes, people's educations were interrupted, in some cases never to be resumed, catastrophic fallout from the breakdowns of the economy in each of those crashes. Now, what the government of the United States is called upon to do each time capitalism crashes is to bail the system out, to step in and offset, compensate, correct, adjust for the mess that private capitalism has made. It's always a wonderful moment for those of us who look at this system from the outside because the same people who routinely give speeches about how the government is a burden and the government should get out of our economy and that the private sector is the efficient way to go, they are the first in line running to the government each time their unstable system collapses asking the government to bail them out. And in this contradiction, these people live. And what they have the government do, starting in 2000, more of it in 2008, and still more of it over the last two years, was to come in and do overwhelmingly two things. Number one, flood the system with cheap money increase the amount of money in circulation, which the Federal Reserve did, and lower the interest rates so that anybody could borrow money at a tiny fraction of what had been the normal rate of interest for most of the last one or 200 years. And the only other thing you might mention is that the government started running big deficits, spending way more than it raised in taxes, to flood the economy with government purchasing orders to compensate for the fact that the private sector, businesses and workers, were cutting back on spending because they were out of work, because the economy looked terrible, because their wages were going nowhere, etc. So all this money comes in. And now here comes the irony that will explain the stock market. Where is all this money going to go? Well, here's where it's not going to go. It's not going to go into producing goods and services because the American people in an economic crash don't buy the way they normally do because they're afraid. They either lost their job or they lost their home or they're fearful that one or both of those things could happen to them, so they cut back. And that, of course, makes the economy even worse. And so the government steps in 
and you have the government buying the stuff that the private sector is afraid to buy just to keep the system going. So there's no point with all the extra money in producing more goods and services for the mass of people because they're not buying. And the government compensates to some extent, but you're not growing the economy. You're trying to prevent horrible shrinkage. So the money doesn't go to produce more goods and services because businesses are having a hard enough time unloading the goods and services they have in inventory and that they're already producing. So then where does the money go? All that extra money pumped into the economy by the Federal Reserve. Answer, it goes into the stock market. There's where the real inflation happens. Not out in the streets for the last 20 years, except this last year when it has started to go into the broader economy. But for the previous 20 years of this century, huge amounts of money pumped in, low, low interest rates, no inflation of goods and services, but a mammoth inflation in the stock market. What do I mean? Prices of stock go up and up and up. People buy stock. How? By borrowing money at virtually no interest rate with which to buy the stocks. You're allowed to do that. It's called buying on margin. You buy the stocks with cheap borrowed money. So, of course, if you lower interest rates and you pump money into the economy, the banks, the insurance companies, the wealthy individuals rush into the stock market and bid up the price of stocks as they buy and sell them to each other. Please remember, 10% of the American people own 80% of the stocks. We're talking about a tremendous inflation, but only in the value of the stocks owned by the 10% already richest people in this country. And they have been doing marvelously. They have been enjoying their monthly statements from their stockbrokers showing that the price of whatever stocks they had keep going up and up and up. Now, does the underlying well-being of the company that they buy shares in, does it justify that? No. And everybody who knows anything about the stock market knows that for years, the increase in the price of stocks is completely out of joint with the underlying reality of the businesses that those stocks come from. Remember, a stock is a share of a business. And if the business isn't doing much better, there's no basis for the shares to do much better unless there is unusual low interest rates and pumping in of money, which we had to do because our unstable capitalism requires the government to come and bail it out in this regular every four to seven year cycle. So where are we today? Everyone in the stock market who really plays in the system, and remember, that's a tiny minority of our people, they know that stocks are, to use their language, overvalued. And so they they go in and they enjoy the ride up. It makes them feel richer and richer as the value of their shareholdings keeps going up. 
but there's annoying anxiety that goes with that. They know the stocks are artificially boosted. They worry what might happen to pop the balloon, to undercut this lovely process of pumping money in, keeping interest rates low, and thereby fueling the ongoing inflation in the price of stocks, bonds, and so on. And then we get to this last year, basically the year 2021. Then something happened, which is a wonderful example of how in the instability of capitalism, each time you find the solution to one of the crashes, it sets up the basis for the next crash, for the next problem. Because you don't deal with the underlying symptom, you don't deal with the underlying cause of that symptom, you're condemned to just bounce from one crisis to another. So here's what happened. Prices started going up. We basically know why, because prices are set by employers, and employers are a tiny minority of the American people, 1%, not even. And they raised the prices this last year for a simple reason. The last two years, the crash and the pandemic have been rough on many businesses. They lost money. They had to close down part of the time. Their workers got sick. Their customers wouldn't come to the store or the factory or they got sick. And so now they thought maybe we can recoup some of the profits we lost in 2020 and in the first half of 2021. And so in the second half of 2021, they started jacking up their prices. We had now an inflation. But this is a real problem in a society whose wages have gone nowhere for a long time, because if the current rate of inflation, 7% per year, continues, it's eating into the standard of living of the working class whose wages are not going up anything like 7%. So now you got to solve the inflation problem, particularly urgent for Mr. Biden, because if he doesn't solve it, any chance he has for re-election fly right out the window. So he's got to do something. So here's what he does. He goes to the Federal Reserve, which is also very anxious about the enormous increase in money in this economy, worried that if it doesn't stay in the stock market, it's going to go into the regular economy and then the inflation will get worse. So they've got to put the brakes on the system. And so here's what they've decided to do. Reduce the amount of extra money they're pumping in. Not stop doing it, just do less of it and raise interest rates. They thought they could do that. They thought they could do it gradually. They thought they could do it without really shaking the system. As so happens so often, they were wrong. The mere fact that they said they were planning to do this, reduce the amount of money, raise interest rates, led to a panic on Wall Street. That's all we've been observing this last week. Panic-stricken owners of shares asking each other one basic question. Is this the big one? Is this when 
the rising tide of stock prices, 20 years old, based on rapid increase in money supply and historically unprecedented low interest rates, if it's over, does that mean the stock market will crash? That's the anxiety. That's why people are selling. That's why other people who don't think it's going to crash are coming in and buying, and the stock market is bouncing around. No one knows quite where it's going to go. And believe me, anyone who tells you they're clear and they know for sure, that's a person you do not want to talk to very much longer because they live in a fantasy world. I went to look to see what were the the stock prices of the defense companies so-called defense companies, the arms manufacturers, the military industrial complex. And they, of course, have guaranteed contracts with the Pentagon, the Pentagon budget this year, as we've talked about in recent weeks, is just in the DOD is $768 billion. That doesn't include the Department of Energy, Department of Homeland Security, other places where military spending is also taking place, but not as immediately evident. It's about a trillion dollars a year. So I was thinking, like, I wonder how they're doing, because I'm looking at the front page of the New York Times, the headline today, front page, right-hand side, Ukrainian troops are left to playing a guessing game. On front line, soldiers wonder when or if a war with Russia might arrive. And then I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal. On the brink of war, Ukrainians are resigned. And in both places, it's pictures of Ukrainian soldiers in bunkers. By the way, the front page of the Washington Post, again, above the fold, the same, same story that there's about to be a war. So as stocks were crashing yesterday, I was looking at, well, how's Raytheon doing? Because CNBC, which, you know, has that daily show about, you know, stocks and forecasting, et cetera, et cetera, they had been telling everybody, buy Raytheon, buy defense contracts. Those are going to go up. Well, sure enough, while the rest of the stock market was crashing, Raytheon was just about even, wasn't crashing at all. And in the last quarter, the fourth quarter of 2021, I just did a little looking around, Raytheon's profits in the fourth quarter went up fivefold, fivefold in one quarter. Now, I also looked at what the CEO pay was for the Raytheon leader, Gregory J. Hayes. And by the way, Richard, I know you'll be happy to know that this servant for society took a 20% pay cut when aviation was hurting COVID and, and that impacted on Raytheon's forecast. He took a 20% pay cut last March. So he reduced his 2021 salary to just $21 million. So quite a sacrifice meaning he was only making about $400,000 each week. Anyway, I want to ask you again, because we've been talking about this, the the yo-yo of the stock exchange and the unpredictability of the capitalist system, I mean, the so-called private sector, it's so obvious. And as you've said over and over again, in the first 20 years of this millennium, we've already had three shocks, three major economic crises. I want to ask you, what is the function then and how important is the role of the military establishment? Is it the stabilizer or at a moment of profound economic crisis, does it become, whilst 
maybe good for its investors, not sufficient to actually stabilize the overall capitalist market. Because of course, this is a form of government intervention, just like the Fed is a form of government intervention, government intervention through defense spending, so-called. Anyway, just your thoughts on that, if you would. Yeah, in economics, there is a term called military Keynesianism, and it makes the point that you just made, namely that the government is a major player in the U.S. economy. It always has been the libertarian fantasy, and I'm being polite here, that we could have or ever did have or should go back to some imaginary time when the government didn't play a major role in the American economy is just that, a fantasy. And nothing better illustrates it than the fact that the United States government is a major buyer, by far the largest single buyer of goods and services in this economy. The defense alone being over a trillion dollars, and you could go on through all the other departments of the government all the uh, economic impact they all have with what they buy, with the number in the millions of people they employ. Therefore, those people can go and spend money in the private sector, all the private businesses affected by the quantity of money and the interest rates and all the other things that the government has an outsized influence on. The notion of a capitalism without a government is, is make-believe. It, it is an attempt to distract people who are upset by capitalism. So instead of being critics of capitalism, they become advocates of less government as if that were the solution rather than the fantasy that it has always been. And to your particular point, because it is now so routinized, because the budget of the Defense Department never goes down, it's only a question of by how much it goes up each year, it can't play the stabilizing role. That has to be done by exceptional other kinds of measure. You could see that over the last couple of years when this pandemic hit, they didn't suddenly double the defense spending. That would have outraged too many people. The United States already spends more on its defense budget than the next eight or nine or 10 countries combined do, and that list of eight or nine or 10 includes both Russia and China. What they did instead was give more money to people on unemployment, use that PPP program to cover the wage bills of millions of American businesses. They had the government come in in a big way to stabilize, to offset the collapse of the system, etc. But it wasn't done by means of the defense. But you're right, the defense is a kind of broadly defined stabilizing business. You keep it going. It is important in many, many parts of the country as an employer, as a purchaser, and all the rest. As you can see, if you pay attention, once the Soviet Union was gone back in 1989, we have been able to have one dangerous external enemy after another, each of them usefully justifying maintenance of defense spending. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, some naive people actually talked about a so-called peace dividend. We would all be able to pay lower taxes because the government wouldn't need to have a massive military presence since the Soviet Union 
the justification for that presence was now no longer in existence. That naivete never lasted very long. The United States immediately found alternative terrors. The war on terror was a big one. We took advantage of that situation to keep the defense going. Then with Mr. Trump, we developed a warlike attitude towards the People's Republic of China, and that became the big external danger. Mr. Biden, along with the Clintons, prefers to demonize the Russians. That's somehow a more classic continuation of the old Cold War. So now we have on the edge of warfare in the Ukraine, etc., etc. This is a boring litany of something much more dependent on domestic politics than anything having to do with the Ukraine, which neither the Russians nor the West has much interest in other than as a ploy, if you like. The best example these days isn't even so much the United States, but the really pathetic display in Britain, where there's a leader, Boris Johnson, whose level of unpopularity makes Trump look as though he were beloved by his nation rather than a loser in the election. Mr. Johnson's in worse shape, having repeatedly partied during the same time that he told the rest of the people in Britain to lock down and avoid getting together with more people. He's been exposed. He's desperate. And the only way to get the headlines off of his indefensible behavior is by rattling his saber. He's sending missiles to the Ukraine, and so he can look like he's doing something. The relevance to the struggle between Russia and the West of anything that happens in London is zero. And the poor man is busy making political theater in the hopes that the media will give him the time of day. It's an amazing spectacle to watch. But the stock market here is also a kind of major distraction. The crazy ride up is now being followed as it usually is by a very scary ride down. No one knows how long this will last, how far down it will go. And if it goes back up, no one will know how long that will last before the next choppy downturn. But as always, you can count on the mass media to reassure us that there's nothing to worry about. Even as underneath this veneer of calm, there's a growing sense across the United States that the ride up of the American capitalist system has come to an end. And we are now in a ride down. And that is a very hard and difficult idea to get your head around. Indeed. You know, Richard, I I want to, not today, because we're almost out of time. We only have a minute or so left for you to have the last word. But perhaps we can continue with the, the discussion of the role of the stock market in a capitalist economy in our next series, we had for a stretch of time focused on the lessons of Marxism as they apply to the contemporary realities of our society, our economy, the struggles of people for social and economic justice. And those are 
and very illuminating and useful because, of course, Marx died in 1883, Frederick Engels died in 1895, long time ago. And so might some people will argue, well, that's just the 19th century, 19th century capitalism. Things have changed so fundamentally that their writings are, you know, interesting in a historical sense, but not applicable to our own reality. Not that important. Obviously, you don't think that, and we here at the Socialist Program don't think that. But in the last year or so of his life, Engels, who had compiled and taken the notes of Marx's unfinished manuscripts from Capital, republished Volume 2 and Volume 3. And it was really Engels who published them. He pulled all that material together. And then as, in one of his last writings, he wrote a supplement to Volume 3 because well, there were a number of controversies swirling around it. We don't have time to go into it. But in that last supplement, that supplement that he writes in the last year, he talks about the transition or the evolution of the role of the stock market in capitalist economy from the time that Marx originally published Capital, Volume 1 of Capital, which was published in 1867. If you're willing to, I want to be able to sort of just take a dive on that one about Marx and Engels' own view of the stock market and how it's shifted and changed. So we'll do that if you're available to do that next week. But in our last minute or so, I want to ask you, if the stock market were to start to go into free fall, which again, that's the point that you started with, like nobody knows, is this the big one? If it starts to go into free fall, we saw in 2008, 2009, the government open the spigots, all credit was available to the banks and to those who would buy because nobody was buying at that time. And then there was all of that supplemental and very huge subsidies for the biggest banks and the corporations. So the government came in and bailed them out. Does the Federal Reserve and the capitalist government, this is a big question for a short answer, does it have the same sort of elasticity or capacity now, having just done that so recently, like in the last you know 12 years? It has no choice. The answer is, look, the 10% of the people who own 80% of the stock, the stock market is for them, their wealth. And if they see a free fall, if they see a collapse, they are going to turn on the government, which by the way, they are. And they're going to demand of that government to step in and save them. They've demanded that with much less on the line. They're certainly going to demand it if you get a crash of the sort that might happen. They will demand that the Federal Reserve and the government step in one way or another. In Japan, for example, the government stepped in not so long ago and started buying shares of stock, the government itself, to boost up the price. The American government, as far as we know, hasn't done that yet, but it could. And my guess is it will, because protecting those 10%, the richest people in this country, the CEOs, the, the people who run this society, that's their number one job anyway. And the people in the top positions of the government are part of that 10%, will feel its anxiety and its pain and we'll turn around and use our tax money to bail them out once again. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism 
fails to save us from pandemics or itself. He has a new hard copy edition of his book, Understanding Marxism, which has been released recently. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.